Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 362. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 362 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-winning engineer, producer, mixer, Matt Ross Spang, making a second appearance on the show. His first was way back on episode number 97. Yeah, that was quite a long time ago. But Matt has been working on a new studio, and he was posting about it, so I messaged him and said, Hey, man, come back on the show. Tell us all about your studio. I'm dying to hear. And he graciously accepted the invitation and uh, came back, and today we will talk about that studio and, and the journey that Matt has taken to get there. Matt Ross Spang, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about staying positive. Here's the deal. Sometimes staying positive in the world of audio is a challenge. And there's a number of reasons why that could be. You know, it could be the time of year. I know that November, December times, those can be tough for some people because, you know, the holidays, they, they have certain effects on certain people. And, and you know, I definitely uh, empathize with them. The other thing that can affect us is our own feelings of jealousy or contempt because we see others doing well. We see their social media posts. Oh, that person's got that piece of gear. That person's working with that client. That person's won that award. And we feel like, oh, well, who are they, right? I'm not saying that, you know, all of you do, and I'm not saying that I do, but I'm just saying that that happens and it, and it can be challenging. Also, when uh, work dries up, that can also challenge us. Those are a few of the challenges that I was thinking about that some of you may deal with. And, you know, I'm not a medical professional. I'm not going to sit here and tell you, oh, I, I have all the answers for you because I don't. What I think, though, is it really takes a mindset change to get past some of that stuff. How you get there, you know, I don't entirely know the answer to that either. I know I'm being completely useless in this rant, but I think it takes a little bit of self-evaluation to, to think, you know, why am I spending all my time getting, you know, bummed out about the success of others that I'm seeing out there in the world? Uh, why do I feel a sense of imposter syndrome? Because, you know, I don't have as many clients as, you know, this person or that person. There's uh, a, a lot that can really affect us. But, you know, I really, once again, it's the mindset change. I don't know if it's a tricking of the mind. I don't know if, if, if it's just a, a shift in thinking. When I started the podcast, I really had to have a mindset change about money in a big way. And really kind of, I don't know, grow up a bit, be an adult about it. So when it comes to these feelings that challenge us and slow us down, you might ask yourself, what can I do to eliminate those feelings? And you know me, I'm, I'm always kind of picking on social media. I think that it can be a huge problem for some of us. You know, if you're spending your time all day looking through Instagram, getting pissed off because you see people being successful at what they're doing, maybe experiment with taking that out of your life a bit if that's really affecting you. 
I know that for me, sometimes I can get a little obsessive about the news that's out there and politics that are going on and things that are happening in our world. While it is important to stay informed, I also think sometimes for me, it's good to step back. You know, I'm not saying bury your head in the sand, but maybe focus a little more on what it is you want to accomplish as an audio pro. Are you hoping to open a studio? Great. What are you doing to work on that? Are you hoping to mix more records? What are you doing to work on that? You trying to work on more films? What are you doing to get there? Try to identify what it is that's causing you some ill feelings and subtract that, right? It's like a bad frequency. Instead of boosting other frequencies, why don't you subtract that frequency? Take that bad frequency out of there so you can focus on the bigger picture. I know that was a terrible analogy, but I think you know what I'm talking about. It's a tough road in general, this path that many of us are on, and it can be a lot easier if you take out the bullshit and get right to the task at hand instead and stop focusing on why others are successful and why you're not. Maybe instead, just focus on you. Focus on doing the best job you can for your clients. I think many of you would agree with me here that if you really focus on doing the best job you can and taking care of your clients, no matter what your audio discipline, I think you'll find that you will get repeat clients over and over again. That will help you in a number of ways and it will grow your audio business. Whether it's the time of year or your social media habits or lack of work, lift your chin up, try to stay positive. I know it can be rough sometimes, especially if you're a beginner. The trick is, is don't stop, don't quit. Because if you quit, you'll never know. But if you keep going and get through the rough terrain, I think you'll find that with a change of mindset and a positive focus, you can really have a wonderful time doing audio You know, if you find something that you love to do in life that will pay you, that's just a bonus, right? That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. 
And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Matt Ross Spang here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Matt Boudreaux. I've been, I love your intro, guys, how he says your name. <laughs> Matt Boudreaux, the, the great Chuck Smith. I always, Yeah, what a great voice. I know. He used to live here in California, but he moved to Mexico, and then he moved to Phoenix. So he's soaking it up in the incredibly hot— Does he want to buy the law or something? That's an interesting route. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is an interesting route. <laughs> no, no, he's, he's above board. Great guy. Well, let's talk about you. The last time you were on as a full guest, because you made a brief appearance at some point in one of the shows, and I can't remember which show that was. Last time you were on was episode 97— this is episode 362. So Congratulations on that, by the way. Well, thank you. It's been a That's while. It's pretty, pretty amazing. I feel like I, I listen to you all the time because I have to drive to Nashville a lot. So it's like, it's the best. Put on a couple working class audios. It's about three hours to Nashville. So, and it's the most boring drive of all time. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's some drives in, in New Mexico and Texas that would rival that boring drive. Oh, I bet. I bet. It's just straight. So you're just going straight for a while. So I've, I've been listening in through the, the whole way. Wow. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you have. And I've been following what you've been doing. And uh, I want to talk to you about that. So you're living in Memphis. You're talking about traveling to Nashville, but you're actually living in Memphis, correct? Yeah. You're currently, or maybe you've recently completed this. I think you may have completed it. Renovation of Studio B at Sam Phillips, right? That happened several years ago. Yeah. So I think right after we got off the last podcast was probably when I moved fully into Studio B. And now I'm, I just finished building a full studio. Studio B was our good mutual friend, Jeff Powell. He has the control room here at Sam Phillips at Studio B. Mm. He's cutting vinyl in there. And then I took over the the old live room and kind of turned it into a mix room. And now I just built a full recording studio with a tracking room and everything in a, the, an old Sears Crosstown building in Memphis. It's called Crosstown Concourse. So I, I'm currently in Studio B as we talk, and I'm kind of starting to transition to the new space over the next month or so. Wow. Well, let's, let's dig in hard on that because I, I bet the listeners are going to love to hear about this. So tell me about this building. 
Sears built 12 of these distribution centers across the U.S. I know they started in the early 1900s because this one was built in like 1910. It's a big Art Deco concrete monstrosity. It's a million and a half square feet. And like 60% of, of it is, is glass windows. So it's real beautiful. It looks something like I have a Batman movie, like a Tim Burton Batman movie. I don't know when it stopped being a Sears, but ever since I've been a kid, this thing has just been empty and it was too big and expensive to tear down and too big and expensive to fix up. And just in the last five, well, about five years ago, it reopened as Crosstown Concourse and these amazing guys, Chris Miner and, and Todd Richardson had a great idea for the building and found some Memphis, for lack of a better word, philanthropists that, that wanted to back them. But it's basically like a creative center. It's a big antenna for creative people in Memphis. And so they took a million and a half square feet. There's a brewery on one side. On the other side, in the physical building, there's a lot of great nonprofits. There's restaurants, apartments. Midtown Memphis sorely needed a, a great music theater venue. So there's basically like a performing arts center style theater in there about, I think it seats anywhere between 700 and 1500, depending how they do the seating. There's also like a songwriting listening room called the green room in there. There's a radio station, WYXR. Now that right when you go in the lobby, you can see the DJs through the glass spinning, spinning records. And they actually do real records and stuff. And oh wow, a lot of great nonprofits. There's also a full fledged like woodworking, metal lathe cutting photoshop pro tools recording like open in the public little computers and stuff that you can go to and do what you want to do right next door to me i moved up to the second floor for the studio and right next door to me is the memphis listening lab and it's a nonprofit i'm very proud to serve on the board but there's a great guy john king who if you're a big star fan he was the publicist at Ardent, and he's the one who did that big rock riders convention where they got all the rock riders down to Memphis in the 70s, and it turned into this debaucherous party, but Big Star played. He helped John Fry start Ardent when he was 15. He basically is one of the world's great vinyl record collectors. He had a collection worth over a million dollars, and he donated it to the Memphis Listening Lab, and, and we kind of... I say we, but it was really Jim Thompson and Sherman Wilmot who designed this space at Crosstown. And it's about 3,000 square foot open to the public vinyl library. There's 35,000 45s, 20,000 LPs, 20,000 CDs, about every music book in the world in there. And they put it all up as a public library. And there's also about 12 stations with turntables and headphones. So during the day, you can go in and pick out a record or, or bring in your own and listen to it. And then our good friend Jim Thompson, who also serves on the board, he he makes Eggleston speaker work, some of the best hi-fi speakers I've ever heard. They make these big speakers for Bob Ludwig, and they actually donated a pair of those. They're like seven feet tall, incredible speakers, and there's a hi-fi listening room. So the space also kind of doubles as an event space, so you can... A band playing a show that night could do like a record release listening or a VIP meet and greet in the listening lab and play their record on these $150,000 speakers on a $10,000 turntable and and really wow people away. So my studio is located next door to that. And then down the hall from me is Craig Brewer, the great director from Memphis who did Coming to America 2 and the Dolomite movie for Netflix and Hustle and Flow. <laughs> and so he has an office down there. And I never really envisioned myself leaving Phillips for a long time. And then me and my buddy, Bruce Watson, who has, he has a great studio in town. We had found an old 
studio from the 70s that was still around. It had been a grocery store, but the control room glass was still up. And we thought about moving in there because I was really wanting to expand to have my own tracking space. And that place was, was just not in the best part of town and needed a lot of work. And then Crosstown kind of wooed me over there. And I really thrive working around other people and having other people in the room. And so to have all these creative people, not even non-music people in the building, and then to, ha to have all these amenities with these restaurants and apartments and stuff, it's really like its own ecosystem. And and especially to have all this music appreciation with, with the venues and the listening lab next door. Usually we make records in a dark corner in a bad part of town. <laughs> And it's a year before anyone hears what we're working on, and we don't know if it's going to be cool or not. But to have all these people that love music within the same building, I think, is going to be a really, really inspiring for artists to come and make records, especially with the nonprofit good cause nature of it all. And I imagine with a million and a half square feet, there's still way more space than they know what to do with. I think it's like 98% filled out. I had one of the last unremaining spaces, but there are weird catacorners and, and stairwells that I plan on using as mobile echo chambers as, until they kick me off and I find the next space. Wow. But yeah, it's a it's an amazing, you know, you can say a million square feet and you can look at pictures, but until you walk in there and see it, it's it's really jaw-dropping. And especially, I think, for Memphis, it's something you would expect to see in Portland or New York or San Francisco or LA, but it's, it's, it's in Memphis and it's, it's happening. So it's, it's really fun to be a part of. What prompted the change for you? What egged you on to say, Hey, I need a, I need a whole new studio. Well, when we last talked, I had just left Sun a couple years ago. So I'd, I'd been at Sun for about 11 years up until 2015. So I was the house engineer. And then I did the scary jump to being an independent producer engineer, you know, how it is in our business. You're either thinking you're never going to, the phone's never going to ring again, or you're so busy, you think it's going to last for a while. And then you're always dreaming when the phone's not going to ring. So I uh, was, wasn't sure how much the phone was going to ring. And so I was enjoying being an independent engineer and I was going a lot to, and I still go a lot to Muscle Shoals in Nashville and, and work a lot of other places. So I, I was like kind of focused on being mobile at that point. And I then took over Studio B as kind of a mix room because I was doing a lot of mixing, but you know, there's no budget now to, to rent someone else's room out for mixing and stuff like that. And I needed to do it whenever I could. So I kind of turned Studio B into my, my mix room and staging area and I would record at Phillips A. But you know, I, I've amassed so much cool gear and so much, I missed, the thing I missed about being at Sun was kind of having a little world set up where I could be super creative, super fast. Like, you know, I always had the auxes on the board patched to certain things and I could just dial it up. And I'm very still very much an analog guy, so to speak. And so now when I track somebody, I got to decide what gear I'm going to bring to the studio in the session. And then oftentimes, as you know, when you get into someone else's world, maybe they don't have a good connection into the patch bay or you still have to go line in through the board and there's all these issues. And so it's like, I found myself bringing less and less to a session because it was harder to implement it and it would just hold up time and stuff. So I kind of missed that aspect of having everything at my fingertips ready to go. If I wanted to cut the tape, if I wanted to go to the H3000, if I wanted to blow something up through a guitar amp, instead of taking 20 minutes trying to figure out how to wire it, I could just do it. And I've been so steadily busy and lucky in that regard that I thought it would be great to have my own space and kind of like a laboratory more than like trying to book 
any public studio sessions as much as I could. It was more of like having a laboratory. And I think our mutual friend Vance Powell, like mentioned in Vance at Sputnik is so inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. That little world that they have and have created. They're not trying to book someone just in for two hours and fill a day. They're just steady with their own work and getting to be as creative as possible. And that that was kind of a big inspiration for me over all these years. Every time I'd visit Vance, when we'd be in for the recording conference or whatever. Yeah. I think studios have changed a lot in that regard. Now it's not so much like people are building a studio trying to get a bunch of work in. It's more like a certain engineer or group of engineers like-minded that want to have their own Frankenstein laboratory. Yeah. That's been a long time dream for a long time. And, and, and now I, with this and Crosstown, I feel like the right time to, to go for it. I bet it really caused you to evaluate your workflow, what you want in an, in an ideal session, you know, how things are laid out. Did you put a lot of effort into thinking through all of this? Yes and no. My workflow changes all the time, especially depending on the project and where we recorded it, because I don't like recording something somewhere and then coming home and all the failures are down and starting from zero. Because I feel like even if I mix something completely in the box, I can never recall the mindset or the the place I was when I did it anyway. So I try to record and mix as I go. And then the great thing about me taking a project from somewhere else and bringing it back to Phillips is Phillips, here we have the great plate reverbs and real echo chambers. And I would maybe swap out if the other place didn't have a plate or a chamber, if I was using a plug-in, I would check to see if I could get a better sound with the plate or chamber here. And, and oftentimes it was better. Sometimes you cannot beat the crusty little D-verb you've been listening to for <laughs> two weeks. But one of the things about this new studio is it's going to be a whole new listening environment. At Studio B at Phillips, I couldn't really record in here. I could do an overdub or two or reamp some stuff, but it's a pretty tight fit. And so at the new studio, I'll be tracking and mixing all in the room. So there was trying to figure out that workflow because I have two old Spectrasonics desks from the 60s that one's a 20 by 8, but the monitoring section's not what we know as consoles to be now. And so I'm going to try and do a two, one console I think will be my tracking board and the other console, everything will return on. So I can kind of track and mix at the same time without having to change one. Because right mm -hmm. now on one desk, I would have to switch it physically from mic to line if I wanted to go back through the EQs and then change the gain structure. So in my mind, I've worked out a lot of it, but until you get in front of it, it'll be ever, ever changing. Well, tell me about the planning and the creation of the new studio. What what went into that? So uh, I should also mention this is before COVID. Oh, <laughs> right. I already lost all my hair trying to think of building a studio. And then when COVID happened, I really got stressed out. But I was interested in moving. Bruce Watson and I had looked at a couple spaces. I kept my eye open for funky spaces around town. And then Crosstown happened. And basically, there was raw space left in the building next to the listening lab, I think there was roughly about 4,000, maybe 5,000 square feet of raw space left. And in the Sears building, if you guys come visit, every 17 foot is a three foot thick concrete column. Hmm. So you also have to envision, how do you make this work around these columns? And it was pretty high ceilings, about 15 foot high ceilings, hmm. but raw, raw space. So beyond budgetary concerns and stuff, it was how can I make this space feel like I wanted to feel because I had certain aesthetic and things I wanted to go for. And I really thought 
either I'm going to make this like a traditional 60s, 70s studio that's about a room Mm -hmm. and that kind of feel, or I'm going to just make it like one big open space where we're all, there's no control room and we're all in a room together. Because also, it's either like I got to make it look like so much of a studio or I don't want it to look like a studio at all. (laughs) (laughs) And I went with the full-on studio vibe, but I hired Steve Durr. I met with a couple of acousticians, but the one I really latched onto was Stephen Durr out of Nashville, who who I've known for years. Met him at Chris Mara when we were both speaking at a Welcome to 1979 event. But Stephen was one of the few guys, A, he maintains a bunch of classic studios that I've worked at, and he was originally from Memphis, but he came up in the time that I really loved a studio and and I wanted to shoot for 1960s studios were big reverberant rooms. And then by late sixties, we started getting two inch 16 tracks. We started putting up burlap. We started building booths and we started deadening them a little bit. And then by mid seventies, we've gone too far. Everything is like got shag carpet and it's so dead. You don't know where it was cut at. So I kind of wanted a sixties room that started implementing some absorption. Like it wasn't super reverberant, but it wasn't super dead. And that that was, I kind of told Steve to have an acid flashback and think <laughs> about those times. And the thing I loved about Steve and I still love about Steve was at the end of the day, he wants you to walk into your studio and go, I can't believe this is mine. And however you get there is fine. And so I trusted him with all of the raising the floor and the dropping down of a ceiling and stuff like that. But he really let me be as involved with the design of the walls and the acoustics and the style and stuff, which I really appreciate because at the end of the day, it's got to feel like mine and what I really like as opposed to what just what he maybe thinks I would like or what's a newer trend or whatever. I took him to Sam Phillips. He's already been to Royal and Sun. He knows all the old funky Memphis studios because none of those guys had like fancy wood or big budgets. They made it work with cheap materials and they made it feel awesome and sound great. And a lot of them disregard acoustical math. Phillips, the control room in A is really wide, but not deep at all. It makes no sense, but it sounds great in there in the control Hmm. room in the, in the tracking room is nice and big. And then Royal studios is an old theater that they turned into a recording room in the control rooms kind of got the Hidley compression ceiling thing and it's all wood. So it just looks like it's all early reflections, but it sounds great in there and they made tons of amazing records. So Hmm. to me, I didn't want to go in there with a perfect math studio. I didn't want to have like, this is what you need to get 30 Hertz out of a room and blah, 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 because all my favorite rooms negate that that matters. So I wanted to have that kind of feel. So Steve was great about that. So we spent months drawing up the rooms and stuff and playing with the size because I have a limited budget and I I could afford about 3,000 square feet in the space. The whole building is really a lounge, so I don't need a big, big lounge. But those concrete columns really play a big part of this because you can't get rid of them. So they really dictated the size of like the control room and stuff. And then how do you, my big thing was also eye sight lines. I didn't want to have cameras with flat screens showing me people making music. I want to see people making music. So we really had to work around those columns. Probably my biggest thing was was making the flow and everything feel good with those columns there. So in the end, layout-wise, you have a control room, you have a live room in, in most typical studios. What is your particular makeup? How is it structured? 
So when you come in, it's a public building. You go down a hallway, you enter my door. There's a long hallway that is also kind of like an echo chamber in a sense. I wanted to have kind of like a trashy sounding hallway because at Sun Studio, at Phillips, at all these places, there's a lobby. And I always mic the lobby. The lobby is where I get my drum sound or my horn room sound or my guitar, like Tom Waits guitar amp sound or something. And so I want a long hallway that's not acoustically perfect, that's not treated, that I could open up a door from the live room or amp on its own to have its own sound. So there's a long hallway. And then to the left, there's also a load into the tracking room. So right when you open the door, you open up the door, you see a hallway and you also see the tracking room. And what's amazing is with the tracking room load in door open, you can see from the entrance all the way through into the control room. And that was not something I planned but it's just really cool. It's like you're automatically wowed from the minute you step in there because you can see all the way through into the control room. But mm. the tracking room is is odd-shaped. It's kind of slightly curved. It's kind of like shaped like a U in a sense, but it's not it's super angular in either way because we're working around the columns a little bit. But it's a roughly 25 by 32 size tracking room, and the control room is like 23 three by 25, somewhere in there. I, I forget. I, I'm also including the walls and the walls are super thick on some of those areas. And then there's a, we call it the sound lock room, but in between, if you go down the hallway, there's a room between the live room and the control room. And it's not that big, but it's, it kind of opens up and then it narrows into a hallway that leads back to the chamber and the office and the lounge and the plate room. But every room is wired for sound except the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> in the kitchen, but I'm not opposed to putting mics in there for certain overdubs. But uh, there's like a little sound lock room, and that that room is like just to give you some space between the control room and the live room. I don't like sliding glass doors in studios. That's one thing I've never liked. So it's just regular doors. But I figure you could put a Leslie in there, or if you want to do a guitar overdub in the control room, they put an amp in there, and it's all set up. And then there's the control room. There's a little tech shop room bathroom kitchen kind of share a really small area a little lounge uh emt plate closet we'll have tapes in there as well a little office for me and then an echo chamber we we built i want to make sure we had space for echo chamber and that's all in about three thousand square feet wow in the wiring did you go the traditional route of just plain old copper wiring or did you try to implement any kind of ethernet based routing of audio no i people would argue, disagree with me but i just, I think from having a hearback system early on, Cat5 is like, I hate Cat5 in the studio just because you can't coil it and blah, blah, blah. So I kept everything traditional analog. We ran about 30,000 feet of audio cable mm. through conduits to all the rooms and the mic lines and stuff. And that's part of, you're talking to a guy that puts four or five mics on the drums at most, sometimes it's two. And so I'm not doing a lot of huge sessions. I usually don't use more than 12 or 14 lines in a full band tracking session ever, but you have one chance to do it right. And there's nothing worse than a good idea done poorly. And so it's like, I went ahead and spent the time and the money and the effort to wire every room with mic lines to make it easier. And do I need eight lines in the lounge? No, but now's the time to do it when we're building up the floors and stuff. So I really wanted to make sure it was done 
with the utmost care and, and forethought. So like I did spend the extra time and money to wire all those rooms, whether we use them or not, or, or whether they ever sound good for sessions, they, they are wired. Yeah. And, and as I think you and I both know, and, and our audience probably knows as well, is cabling is not cheap. No. And it's one of those, you know, it's a necessary expense and you've got to get it. And it goes into the wall or the floor and you never see it, but you hear it every single day. Yeah. And especially for me, because I'm in a public building, so it's an old building, but it's been rehabbed and there's new codes now. So like the bathroom, everything needs to be wheelchair accessible. So I have to like, the bathroom is way bigger than we ever would need it to be because it needs to be wheelchair accessible. And then like wiring has to be plenum rated and stuff like that. There's certain codes to it all. So I had to definitely go the extra mile and some of that stuff just because of modern code stuff. Right. And that term plenum rated, is that the term they use to say that this can go behind a wall and be sealed yeah, behind a wall? Yeah, basically it's not fireproof, but it's not going to just catch on fire and stuff like that. Yeah. Wow. That's definitely uh, important to keep in mind in a public building yeah. or any building for that matter. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. What about the aesthetics of the studio? What did you want to do with that? And what did you end up doing? Well, I, uh, I really love 60s and 70s studios. And I really picked from all my favorite places. So like, again, thanks to Steve Durr and Matt Schlachter over at Steve and Durr Designs. They were cool. Like Steve suggested hardwood floors. And I said, man, I really love just like linoleum tile, like sun and, and all these great studios. So he's like, of course, do it he would let me know when we were going to go wrong somewhere or like if there's a reason for doing something or a certain angle or a certain th this or that. But I really wanted to go with like a tile floor and uh, Sun and Sam Phillips implemented an angular ceiling, kind of a drop down angular ceiling. And I really 
always loved that. So like we made it our own for the new space, but it does have an angular ceiling to offset any parallel surfaces. But it kind of works like at Fame and other spots where we used a ceiling tile that's got holes in it, perforated metal holes. So the sound, the, while the ceilings may drop down to 12 and a half feet, they still go up to the full 15 feet. So you still have the benefit of a 15 foot ceiling, but you have some angles in the sound. I don't know the absorption to reflection rate of the ceiling tile design, mm-hmm. but it lets some sound pass through, other sound it bounces around. So it's to me, pretty unique. And then I used just some good old fashioned. There's a guy, Welton Jaton in Memphis, who helped build the equipment. He built the desk, the recording consoles at Stax and Ardent. He was the guy who started Autotronics. Early on, it was using all Spectrosonics gear and it was discreet. And he also built acoustic treatments and stuff. And so if you look at early pictures of Ardent and stuff, they had these beautiful burlap wooden slat designs. And I always love those. Fame has kind of a similar one. So we melded those with burlap and made our own version of that for the walls. And then Steve has this cool corner trap design he loves that he, I don't know if he, he got that from, he worked with Welton for a long time and also Chips Momin. So some of that's he learned from them and some of it's his own design. But we did these cool corner traps for base. Obviously, it's just burlap with a bunch of insulation back there and a little pegboard. Uh, again, all cheaper materials. And when he put up the pegboard, we had this great guy, Ken Captain, who did all the acoustic building. Ken Captain's a genius. All the woodwork in there, everything you see is from Ken. He's based out of Detroit. But when they they put everything up but the burlap and the corner traps, and they had this on the pegboard, they had this white square, and it was something to let the low end pass through or come out or whatever. And I was like, man, I'm going to miss those squares when we put the burlap up. So I had him actually just do like some cheap wood trim over the burlap. So when you look at the corner traps in the studio, you'll see squares. And that was just what it looked like raw, I thought was cool. So I wanted Hmm. to maintain that. The drum booth is really cool. It's mostly wood. And in the ceiling, it has wood lattice work over the burlap. And that's a chips moment thing. And that helps make the room sound bigger than it is and and does some diffusion too. Hmm. And it's really unique looking. And and it keeps everything kind of like 15% 15% redneck, which I like, you know, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's got lattice work in there, which is such a ugly thing until you stain it and make it look like walnut. And then it looks classy all of a sudden. Yeah. So, uh, it's just, it's really just a lot of sixties and seventies inspiration with burlap colors. It's all green and burnt orange and white and walnut teak colored wood and n- nothing fancy. There's no, it's all cheap wood, just stained night to look nice. I wanted it to, to kind of be a, an amalgamation of all my favorite studios. I'm hoping that's the right word. That's a big word for me. But um, <laughs> I took a little bit from Memphis and Muscle Shoals and tried to like have a baby of that. So it's got a little bit of Sam Phillips and Rick Hall, Ardent, Royal Studios, yeah, all those places in there. And I, I was really inspired, Matt, like... I've always been a fan of old older studios, but when you read like that book, like the great recording studios of Great Britain and stuff like that, and you look at old pictures, you would know a studio, you could tell by its baffle, oh, that's Olympic or that's Arden or where are stacks or whatever. And I mean, even the baffles were custom made because at the time there was no one making those things. Everyone just made them themselves. So I really wanted to adhere to that. I just love that. So we custom made our baffles to fit the rest of the aesthetic of the studio custom made the headphone systems and even the DIs are all coming from my brain and whatever genius I was lucky to team up with while we did it. 
But I, I, that's that's one of my favorite parts of those older studios. Was everything was like unique to the studio, and I kind of miss that these days. I love that because you know there's a lot of great companies out there making some fantastic off the shelf products that they didn't make, as you say, back in the sixties and the in the seventies. But it kind of like homogenizes it all because yeah. we all just get the same stuff. Whereas you custom make the stuff and make it your own, and it's got a lot of thought and care put into it. I know. And I love that. That's, that's really cool. And, and I'm always, I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, I follow electrical audio, Steve Albini's place on Instagram. Absolutely. And I was, uh, I saw a post the other day about their custom DIs that they're making now. Yeah. And I just think, you know, wow, that's just like so uniquely them. And I miss that kind of regional and person specific customization and it sounds like you're really going down that rabbit hole and adding to those that are still doing it like like Steve is. Yeah, it's a, you know, to make a DI is not that hard. You need a pedal enclosure and a transformer and a couple of jacks and a little bit of wire and you've got a DI. And when you really experiment with different transformers and stuff, I you know, I think the best example is now everyone's loving that Motown DI, the mm-hmm. the one by Acme. And that's, I think it's a copy now, but it was a, just a try at 11J, which up until the Motown DI, you could get for very cheap. And now everyone wants crazy money for them. But, you know, an old UTC, an old triad, they all wired up, sound great and do different things. And I would work at Royal Studio, still had the original DIs. And of course, they're, they're not labeled. They're just in a funky little box. And you're like, man, boo, can I open this up and look inside and see what it is? And okay, they used the UTC transformer. And then you go to like Nashville and I worked a lot with Dave Cobb and he had like the Bradley's Barn DI and you'd open it up and see what, oh, they used a tiny little UTC or, and all these guys just found a transformer that worked and wired it up, but they're all slightly different. And so that, that was kind of, yeah, what I like was having a couple options like that. And then also it helps like when a band comes in and they're like, is that your radial or is that mine? And it's like, no, this right. is obviously mine and there and stuff. But yeah, and they all they have their own little sound. And it's just, like you said, it's unique. And I think when you come in to the studio, you're obviously going to see how much love and care was put into it. And when I think that's extended all the way down the line, I'll send you a photo when we get off of here. But me and this great tech and engineer in, in Muscle Shoals, his name is Greg Pace. His company is called Funkin' Works. But I called him and asked him to help me come up with a cool headphone system because I don't like giving everyone eight channels or 10 channels or 12 channels to figure out their headphones. I don't like cat five. So the hearback systems out for me, I don't like the limiter built in. I don't think they sound as good for the price point stuff. They're very helpful, but for what I was looking for, they're not the best thing I've ever liked is those old eight channel boxes. I forget they're a British company that made them. They have them at sound emporium. But it's still, it's eight channels. It's got these big faders. It's funny. It's a fader, a pan, a high and low EQ, and a master volume. And still, artists have so much trouble with that. And at Philips, they still have the original 60s headphone system, which is everyone gets the same two mix. There's not even a volume control in the box. I literally, it just is a box with a headphone jack, stereo or mono, and they all share the same mix. And it's the mix molted off the two mix of what I'm doing on the monitor side of the board. And I love that because it kept me building them a headphone mix. And so by the time we've got the song, I've got all my volume rides. I'm I'm riding the mix like the rough mix is going to sound great. I know where all the boogers are. I know where all the overdubs need to kind of go. 
It's like playing without headphones because no one can just turn themselves up or play too loud. I wanted that, but a slightly more evolved version of that where you could turn your volume up or down because obviously if someone's at it behind a drum kit and someone's playing acoustic guitar, there's some SPL differences there. So we designed a cool two-channel headphone box where you get a stereo mix and then there's a, an extra, we call it the extra knob where I can send one more thing to that knob. Mm. And I found these, I was telling him, I was like, what I don't like is that we put them in these nice kind of enclosures and we tried out different amplifiers till we got the sound we liked in the headphones. You got to decide then how do you power it? Do you have power at each box? Because then that means running extension cables and a power strip to every station and that can get kind of cluttered. Yep. Do you run power inside the cable and then go it through the wall? So we, we did all those decisions, and then I was like, well, you know, either this goes on the ground or people put it on a music stand, it falls off. That always drives me nuts. So I found these weird end tables on Amazon, and we bought a test one. We got it, he drilled a hole in it, and we were able to mount the headphone box to the top of this little end table. All the cabling hides inside the table. There's just one connector on the back. You can't knock it over. You got plenty of room for your coffee and capo and picks and all that stuff. And it's this funky end table. They've stopped making it at this point now, so it's even harder to recreate. But everyone will have a little station where they are, where there's a headphone box that can't be knocked over, can't be kicked. There's no cabling, ratty cabling hangout. It's going to be super clean and nice. Wow. And hopefully really cool. But I got so into it that we like kept making all these things to make it hipper. And, and then we're talking about the Q system, but in most studios, the Q system is where everyone kind of just goes super cheap, but it's what every musician listens through and plays through and is trying to connect to music through. So it's really, really important. Yeah. I've always been a fan of, and I think they stopped making them, is the Furman system that has the brain and it sends absolutely the analog audio over ethernet over a gray and a blue cable. Yeah. So it's not digitized, but it's just four channels and then a stereo channel and that's it. Yeah. I've always been a big fan of those. Of course, the brains always hummed like crazy. It would just bug the crap out of me. But once again, you've customized, you've made it unique to you and your, your studio, which I think that's cool. You don't have to rely on anybody except yourself to make them. Yeah. You know, it is going a little crazy. I'm worried I'm getting like Howard Hughes at this point. <laughs> Not that I have Howard Hughes's money, but the Howard Hughes OCD-ness. I, I've trimmed, I cut my fingernails the other day, but just with wanting everything to be right and perfect. But I'm so grateful to have become an independent engineer and work in all these rooms because it really helped me hear all kinds of gear, hear all kinds of rooms, hear all kinds of microphones, learn what I really love and don't love about how people have stuff set up, you know, just mm -hmm. like whether it's a Q system or how they've got stuff on the board, the patch bays, all that stuff really plays into it. And I really learned a lot in a short amount of time. In this studio, I'm trying to not go down the, the easy route where where a lot of studios go down where you get into trouble, like not having everything on the patch bay, not having every room tied to a mic line, not having the best Q system or, or not having a decent Q system, not having all those kind of things I'm trying to solve. And, and a lot of those little things, like just the headphone system or where people can put their stuff in the studio, it, it all adds up, you know. Gina Johnson, I did a lot of records with her at RCA that Dave had, and she always had these amazing little wooden tables and she would light a candle and have like 
a little setup for every person that came in there. And, you know, I don't think the bass player always got the cool little table, but the singer or the artist always did. You could always see that even if they didn't have anything like capos and slides and stuff, they still would have a little table where they could put their stuff down. It meant a lot. When we were doing John Prine, he had these crazy books full of songs and lyrics, and he would bring like little like bobbles and things, Archie comics, and just for him comfort stuff. And just having a little table set it out on was he loved it, you know, and if there was not a table there, he probably won't even ask to have one, but those little things go a long way. They don't matter about acoustics at all, but they really go a long way for people to relax and stuff. So I want to try and have that all there. Yeah. Do you think that there's a comfort level that people get when things are nice, but not too nice? That is one of the hardest things about, I think, not not just building a studio, but operating a studio, having a studio, right? Because you, you don't want someone to come in and feel like they can't sit down on the couch or put their drink over here or play their guitar. But at the same time, you want them to know that they can't put their drink maybe there, <laughs> but they can there. And you can put your feet up on the table, but not on this table. Yeah, it's really, it's really tough. Anytime I go into a studio that's super clean, and pristine, I'm like worried, like this must not sound good in here because <laughs> you guys aren't that busy. When you go into a studio that's like got some some dirt and some funk area, you know, like, man, they're so busy. They haven't had time to dust everywhere or even think about dusting. That's the ultimate balance you try to find when you're a studio owner or something where you try and have the right vibe and the right feel. But let people know they can feel at home, but also like use that coaster, uh, yeah, et cetera. Well, based on your experience with this build, what advice can you give on the financial front to others who are about to go through the same thing or thinking about doing something like this? How would you direct people in terms of finances on this kind of a thing? First of all, never build a studio. I think <laughs> we would all say that. I'm, <laughs> I'm so dumb. Don't follow me. This is really like a go big or go home thing for me that like I knew if I didn't try it, I would always regret it. And I'd rather go bankrupt and have to sell everything if this doesn't work out than not try it and be safe. I feel like it's a, a really big creative time for me to try and maximize my creativity, blah, 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 blah. Saying that, if you're doing a home studio or you're doing a bigger studio, Steve and Durr, there's, there's other great acousticians out there. There No job is too small or too big. I really feel like you should talk to someone at some point for advice, who's done it before, even someone who's just built a studio before who's not necessarily an acoustician. I have so many great friends, Mark Rubel, Jonathan Pines, Vance Powell. You are friends with all these same people. And they all, a million people helped me along the way up until building the studio and then through building the studio. I showed drawings and pictures to everybody and closet space. When you're renting space, the last thing you want to do is have a big closet you're paying a bunch of square footage rent on but you need it. You got cases, you've got extra snare drums, you got mic lockers, you you need storage and stuff. So there's things like that that other people helped put in my brain that I may have looked over. But you obviously can't get everything you want. You don't have the money to do everything you want to do. So you need to figure out the things that matter the most and really do those things. And then also, we were talking about cabling. Some of the unsexiest gear purchases for a studio are some of the more expensive cable and getting, you know, you don't need to have everything in Mogami silver core wiring, but you need to have decent cable. You need to have as much as it can properly wired. You know, a patch bay is going to save you so much time and energy as you expand 
your equipment in your studio and stuff like that, getting the monitoring right, getting the ground electrical, all that stuff right. There's so many million little things that add up as you do a studio that is way more important than having eight channels of Neve or API pre's or a Neumann U67. If you've got a Neumann U67, but you've got ground hum through the whole building, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really, I would plan a bunch. You can never plan for it all. You're still going to come up with surprises. There was so much that we drew on paper that luckily when it came out, it was like, this feels good. Because you draw a studio on a piece of paper and you go, how is this going to feel though? I don't understand, you know? And then you chalk it out. I would cut out cardboard paper size things of the gear so I could lay out the control room once the walls were kind of up. But I still made so many changes on the fly and I'll continue to make changes on the fly because you never know until you get there. So you can't fully prepare for everything. But at the end of the day, you got to just make it feel like an extension of you. And what are you calling the studio? That was maybe the hardest part of all, Matt, is like, what do you call a studio that's not pretentious, that's not something two years later, you're like, why did I call it that? That's so dumb. But when I left Sun in 2015 and became an independent engineer, my music lawyer told me, you know, I need to have like a start an S Corp because I'm an independent contractor and blah, 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 blah. So I, I needed to come up with a business name. I called it Southern Grooves because I was trying to think of something that was Memphis without saying Memphis. Mm. And so I started Southern Grooves and then I decided to call the studio that, although Crosstown, my buddy John C., the bass player of the great band Lucero, he lovingly calls Crosstown the young folks' home. So that was a really close second for the studio. And then for a while, my hero is Dan Penn, and he wears overalls all the time. And he came down to visit me and see the studio, and he actually gave me a pair of his overalls that he signed. And I thought about calling it Overall Sounds. But... um <laughs> I kept it Southern Grooves. It might it might be one of those things we change every album. We just give it a different name for fun. But Yeah. Is it meant to be a commercial place, or do you plan on just making it your home? I don't know how or why, or why I'm so lucky, but I've been very busy all these years. I hope that continues, especially now I'm building a studio. So I, I foresee it mostly as being kind of my world for projects I'm doing or bringing in, but there's so many engineers out there I love and bands I love, and I... I'm not the right fit for every project. So like if you wanted to bring something in or or my buddy, you know, Bruce Watson or whoever wants to bring something in, but they want to do it themselves or bring some other one in, I, I would never say no to that. I definitely am not trying to like do a two-hour session, you know, do a vocal over for two hours for just someone I don't know. There's so many variables in that. And then I have to train someone I know to be there and watch while I'm gone and stuff like that. So in a perfect world... It's kind of like a private Frankenstein laboratory for me and my friends, but we got to pay the bills and we got to do all that stuff. So check with me three months from now and I'll, I might be doing <laughs> jingles for people. That's right. At a discounted rate. <laughs> That's right. You'll be doing a Target commercials. Yeah, exactly. Is the studio open? Not yet. So we designed and started before COVID and we continued to build through COVID and Luckily, I got lucky in that regard in that we bought all the materials beforehand. So we got it before the major. I don't know if you guys out there tried to do any home fixing up or stuff, but wood like went like 12 times the normal cost and stuff like that. So luckily we got in before all that or else I would probably would have been dead in the water. 
the contractors said they were going to finish the studio in six months. Stephen Durr said that was not going to happen. They claimed it was. They said they were going to be done in February of 2021. They were not done in 2021. Then they said they were going to be done in April. I think it was April or May. They did not finish by then. And then it wasn't until about October that I thought, we're actually going to finish this month. So there were several times there where I paused from work. I started to pack everything up where I'm at, at Sam Phillips. And then I stopped when I realized we're not going to make this deadline and I still need to work. So then I would take on some more work and then I would try and slow down again because I, I don't want to be halfway through a, a, an album's mix or something and move. And I need to make sure I have everyone's records done and signed off before I tear down an old setup and start a new one. So. They finished construction in October. So I've, as of October, I've been able to move in. It's a dust-free environment. I can move stuff in. Unfortunately, I took a bunch of albums during that time. So I'm trying to finish roughly three albums right now in various stages of tracking and mixing. So I've been slowly moving over amps and guitars and all these records we're doing out of town. And I'm leaving my mix setup up at Phillips for as long as I can. And once that's done, I'll finish the control room. Hmm. So I'm kind of moving everything else. And, and at the same time, I've got all these years worth of hoarding that I have never formally listed. So I'm taking photos, doing spreadsheets of every piece of gear, everything like that for insurance and stuff like that. So I know exactly what I have and, and where it's at. Right. Will the studio be equipped with musical equipment that musicians can come in and just jump on and play or is it like bringing your own stuff because i know that some people do that they'll have like the house kit obviously you can bring in your own stuff but they'll have stuff ready to go what's what's your take on that how are you going to do this i've collected so i'm not a drummer i am a guitar player so i definitely have a couple guitars and a lot of amps and stuff but like I'm a big fan of drums, huge fan of drums. So over the years, I've kind of collected some funky drums here and there or some stuff. I swap out whether it's a whole kit or just a drum almost every song. Some songs need a closed front thundery head. Some some need no head, dead, just clicky 70s kick with a 57 shoved in there or whatever. I'm not a great drum tuner, so I like to have all these pieces where we can go this song needs something weird. Let's swap out just the kick drum or the snare. So I, a lot of times I have some of those pieces just for ease of that. So I definitely have two or three kits mm. at the studio. I've got plenty of guitar amps, got some bass options. I need to get some cymbals because I really like to have some dark cymbals around because a lot of people bring the opposite of that. I had to buy a piano and an organ for the studio. You know, the big stuff I never had because I was trying to stay mobile. So I wanted to get a really nice piano for the studio in Oregon. And then I've got like a Mellotron and a Wurlitzer and a little Moog and stuff here or there. So I do have a lot of that stuff and I have some good pieces like that where I, th I definitely think people will, will want to bring in their bass guitar, their cymbals, their snare and stuff like that. But I, I do have enough that you could easily make a record without complaints, hopefully. Knock on wood. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm super excited and I can even remember if I've toured through Memphis in the past in my youth, but now I have a great excuse to come down and pay a visit to not only you, but Matt Qualls. Oh yeah. Matt's great. You got to see Matt Qualls and Jeff Powell and Boo Mitchell and Scott, Bo we got, and then uh, Scott McEwen just moved down here from Nashville and he built Memphis magnetic, which is a really cool studio off of Vance. So that's great. Yeah. See, we'll just get all the mats together. 
Yeah, that's all we need. <laughs> I'm going to put a link to southerngrooves.com in the show notes for, for the audience. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that, that you wanted to mention? Well, I would just want to reiterate how thankful I am for everybody. You know, you, you're a big part of this, even though we've only got to hang a few times, but we have such a great community. And I think this podcast highlights that, but this would have never happened if I had not joined this big community of all of us and talked to Vance and talked to Andrew Sheps and become friends with Mark Rubel and Jonathan Pines and all these folks and who we get to work with. All these guys, there's so many people I could say were a vital part of this studio build just from one phone call where they inspired me with something. Well, Matt, it's great to see you and I wish you the best of luck and knowing the little I know about you and in terms of how you operate, I know you're going to kick ass and, and do great with this. So I can't wait to see it in person, though. Cool. Come on, Bubba. We're ready anytime. All right, Matt, you take care. And thank you again for making time for me. It's great to hear about your new place. You too. Thank you, Matt. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Matt Ross Spang here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have him back. I want to thank you all for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. And I want to remind you that if you have a guest suggestion, we have a guest suggestion form. Very official. Over at workingclassaudio.com. Head on over there. Fill it out to the best of your ability. And we will consider bringing the person that you are suggesting on the show. That's how that works. All right, but that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical Chuck Smith with his magical voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.